0: It's a real honor to be here in the office of Bob Robotti, the founder of Robotti and Company Advisors. Bob will be speaking at LatticeWork 2017, sharing his insights on the role of active management in the modern world. Thanks for welcoming us into your office. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Before we talk about the LatticeWork 2017 conference, please tell us more about your background.
1: I graduated college and worked for a small accounting firm. I did both audit and tax, therefore I had a breadth of kind of knowledge. It was interesting to see many different businesses and to understand the limitations of what auditing can tell you and not tell you, and to learn accounting, because accounting is the language of business. Understanding financial statement construction enables you to better deconstruct the financial statements to understand what the economic reality is underlying a business. I was also very fortunate that accounting firm actually audited a number of investment advisors. Early on, I used to work on the audit of Tweedy Brown. Of course, Tweedy Brown is a legendary firm that's been in the value investing space since its inception. It is part of the genesis of that segment of the investment community. When Ben Graham closed up shop, half the people from Graham Newman walked into Tweedy's office. Therefore, what I knew when I first got out of school was what Tweedy owned, what they bought, they sold. It was not only the Tweedy people and talking to them when it was a smaller firm, and therefore I knew Ed Anderson, who ran the firm at the time, knew John Spears, who was new to the firm, Chris Brown. In addition, I also knew Eddie Schlosswell. That's Walter's son. We're about the same age, and I think the first stock I ever bought was something that Eddie suggested to me. We were also fortunate enough to audit Gabelli and company. For three years, I worked for Mario Gabelli. And that's what I tell everybody. Uh, Back then, the focus of the firm was really his brokerage business, because he was originally a sell-side research analyst. Every morning, we had a morning meeting, and he went through his favorite investment idea. So that's what I say is, I had an executive MBA program that was taught one-on-one by Mario Gabelli to me, and he paid me to attend his class. I didn't have to pay him. Those are the two things, what Tweedy owned, what they bought and they sold, and how Gabelli thought about investments and what those investments were. So, of course, I had been bitten by the bug and I had the right orientation. Fortunately, I didn't take finance in college and find out about efficient markets and all kinds of misinformation. I wasn't in any way corrupted through that process. And, of course, I really wanted to pick stocks because all of us who get a passion for that, that's what we want to do. So I went out and started my own firm since Gubelli didn't need me to pick stocks when he was managing, when I left, $77 million only. He clearly had the capability to pick whatever he needed and pull up his portfolios. So that's how I got into investing. I also think that's formed how we have thought about investing, because Tweedy very much is a more Ben Graham balance sheet oriented, cheap stock kind of purchaser, as was Walter Schloss. And that's what we did. We bought cheap stocks. Having done this for over 30 years, what you do realize is many cheap stocks are cheap for a reason. And the reason is they can't generate a return on the capital they have. Just because it's an accounting number and book value, it's not an indicator of future economic values. Therefore, there's a lot of misleading information and there's a lot of companies that you end up investing in that are not particularly good investments. That's the evolution we've done over time, is having invested in cheap stocks and having some that did work out. So why did the ones work out and why did they not work out? Normally, there's two classes that we found. One of them is there was controlled by somebody who was a smart capital allocator. And so therefore, not only were the assets cheap, but he was constantly looking at moving those assets and reinvesting the assets to get higher returns to grow value because there was an alignment between his ownership and our ownership. And the other thing was we often found that we invested in cyclical businesses that were at valuations that were depressed because of the outlook of the business in the short term was extremely negative. Therefore, a lot of what we do today really is focused on trying to identify cyclical industries, cyclical companies, cyclical businesses, and identify who's the survivors in the business, who potentially has product differentiation, who understands the cyclicality of their business and therefore can work to the advantages on that. There clearly are advantages. Absolutely, in the bottom point of the cycle, there's the opportunity to acquire significant assets that have high earnings power at very modest valuations. Therefore, to deploy capital at the right time
0: is potentially a huge positive. The role of active management in the modern world, how do you begin to think about that question? Well, clearly, we've always come
1: from a bottom-up stock-picking culture, and we continue to believe that there is value in that, and that the market's inefficiencies are there because of human nature. We don't think that any of those rules have changed. Therefore, the fundamental underlying reason why markets are not efficient are are the intervention of people. And we think that people today have all the same biases they've always had. We think there's plenty of ways, potentially, that's playing out today, and then that's causing valuations to significantly diverge from intrinsic values of businesses, potentially having other businesses that are valued today significantly less than what the intrinsic value is. So we actually think that as the market becomes more institutionalized and whether it's indexed directly or indexed indirectly, what you really have is people picking stocks not based on any kind of fundamental analysis. In our minds, the role of active management, stock selection, differentiation, is inherently more logical, that it should be the right tool that should differentiate performance over time.
0: How do you think about the overlay of mechanical trading, computer algorithmic trading, even artificial intelligence? How do you think through that challenge? A friend of mine a month and a half ago when
1: BlackRock came out and said, we're gonna do all this AI, artificial intelligence, and Bob, you better watch out because they're gonna have a computer that'll invest just like you, so you'll be displaced. I said, I don't know why BlackRock would waste money trying to figure out how I invest and try to replicate what I'm investing in. There's a lot more ways that they could deploy capital much more intelligently, that they can deploy and allocate significant dollars of capital as opposed to the small amounts we do. In terms of stock selection and the companies that we're looking at, I just don't see artificial intelligence coming into play anytime in the foreseeable future. Of course, I'm not a technology person, so maybe I'm misunderstanding and misunderstanding stating and being naive about that process. Recently, someone who I do respect was talking about a very large firm who clearly must have some kind of institutionalized process. Because when he looks at the companies in his universe, and a lot of them we jointly own, he said, it's amazing how often they show up in those companies. They're doing something that's like what we're doing. So there is some capability and there is really something that's you know people are attempting to do. But A lot of what we do also is industry-specific. Energy is an industry that I've invested in for over 40 years. And I think I have an understanding of how the business works, what the perception and what the reality is are frequently very different in that business, and especially at tops of cycles and bottoms of cycles. I think there's some industry-specific knowledge I have about how the businesses work and therefore which businesses are well-positioned and should do well over time that... Even if there's some computer that's figuring out something, what I'm doing, I I think I still have enough specific information. Also we manage a modest amount of capital, so therefore there's not a lot of things that we have to pick differently. Just a few things can really move the meter for us, and it's not going to move the meter for somebody else who's got large capital that they're looking to deploy. From your vantage
0: point, do you find history rhymes? Rhyming of course is
1: exactly right. It doesn't repeat, it rhymes. There are some similarities, but there's probably a lot of disparities between today's markets and you know, where they were in 98 and 99. A number of companies that had no economic model and had valuations that were extremely expensive. That was easier to see, and today that's not nearly as pervasive that there's as much capital that's flown into things that are as
0: separated
1: from fact and reality in terms of valuation.
0: With the advent of internet, People might have said the same thing in the 90s. There's going to be a much more efficient market. There's no more easy opportunities. That brings up the question of what's your analysis? What's
1: your time horizon? What are you looking for? And I would think that there's more time spent on how to outperform the market in the short term than how to outperform the market in the long term. Therefore, stock selection is also different. What metric are you using? Is it a three to five year time frame or is it a one year time frame? And how you would pick a portfolio is different based on, I want to outperform in the next year or I want to outperform over the next five years. Although I guess you could model a computer to do the same thing, to think, okay, I don't want an immediate reaction. The fact of the matter is it won't attract much capital because it's gonna potentially underperform in the short term. It's really not focused on short term performance.
0: Are you finding there is more efficiency in smaller territories? In certain cases, we see more
1: inefficiency. Because what you do see is one or two companies that are in indices that occasionally have real volatility in where the stock price is, right? Because someone wants to buy the index, and it's a member of the index, and it has limited liquidity. And that doesn't matter because you need to fill up that allocation in those proportions. We do see occasionally some of our securities have very
0: high volatility, which provides opportunities for us to sell some stock, buy some stock. If we invert the question, what is not the role of active management in the modern world? Of course, I fundamentally do believe that over the
1: long term, the idea of indexation is an extremely valid thing for the average investor. Because on average, active managers are still going to be large institutions who are still going to have next quarter's performance, next year's performance is bonus, and they'll lose their job if they don't outperform. So... The institutionalization, which has always been the case, of investment means that the focus you have to have if you manage a large amount of money actively is still what's the short-term performance going to be, whether your computer is designed to look at what the short-term is or whether you're not, but you're focused on job preservation to therefore be concerned about short-term, most active managers, of course, over time have underperformed the index. And that's because of all those factors. And if anything, they're stronger today than where they were before. So the idea that you're going to be able to pick the active manager who's going to outperform the other active managers and outperform the market is difficult. So for the average investor, it would seem to, I would think the concern would be someone who's indexing today is potentially indexing, though, at a time when it's at risk, because there's so much indexation that's moving and therefore moving valuations. And therefore, what are you buying? You're tending to buy things that are more expensive in an expensive market. Therefore, it would seem as if buying the more expensive companies in a more expensive market is not potentially a formula for long-term investment success. It may be the wrong time to move from active management to indexation. But over time, I think there's a real role for indexation. It makes a lot of sense. And probably for most people, it's probably a better option.
0: I know you're far too humble to bring this up yourself, so let me raise the point. You've made quite a bit of money actively investing in certain cycles. Could you share a brief case study of intelligent, active investing done right?
1: Of course, I think it's pretty well determined that you don't need a lot of winners. You just need the right winners in the right size to therefore have a big impact on performance. One of the ones that you know I've talked about in the past is the biggest loser I've ever had of all times is my investment in what was Ethel Corporation at the time, which then we bought it originally in 1998. And the reason we bought it in, 90, in 97, 98, we bought it because in 97, the company did a significant buyback of stock. The Gottwald family has a long record of significant insider ownership, allocating capital intelligently. And what we had seen in the company was that they had acquired one or two competitors, the industry had consolidated down to an oligopoly, and they didn't see any opportunity to buy the other three remaining people, and therefore bought back a piece of their own business as an opportunity they believed at the time. Facts worked out in the short term. In the intermediate term, to be wrong, they levered up the company, and they bought back stock. So a year later, when it it's down 20%. We buy some stock and say, hey, this is interesting, right kind of people. Clearly, the valuation is less than what they think the intrinsic value is. But when they did buy it back, A, the leverage, but B, also the market dynamics. Chevron had built the plant. The ninety seven uh, Asia financial crisis had happened. The demand for the product had slowed. So the supply and demand got out of balance, and supply was greater than demand. And therefore, the industry had no pricing power, even though it was an oligopoly. So cyclically, it was at the wrong part of the cycle. The head levered up. And so we bought the stock consistently as it continued to go down, figuring every time it went down, yes, but the intrinsic value of the business is still significantly higher than where it is. And who cares about where we got in? We only care about where we are today. And we continue to be wrong, because the business continued to get more difficult the business didn't get more difficult in the later years as it continued to dwindle down because the debt was getting paid down because it was generating significant cash, and they were deleverating the balance sheet. As I said, I think our original purchase price was $35. Did it get down to $3 a share? So we bought more stock at $3 a share. At $3 a share, it had 17 million shares outstanding. So you know the market cap of the company was less than their annual spend on R&D. We thought that there was something significantly out of whack with the value of the business and what it was being valued at. Of course, in the meantime, nobody would have bought the stock. There would have been no indicators for it. There was no analyst coverage. Who cared about a company that had a $50 million market cap? And then as it played out, the stock actually started to recover. The debt had been significantly paid down. But the important thing really had happened was the leader in the business was Lubrizol. Lubrizol always said, we're going to grow the business. The problem was this is not a growth business. It's a 1% to 2% growth business. And since they were trying to grow, that limited the cash flow and the profitability of the business. They acquired a company that did, I think it was hair care product chemicals. And suddenly that had growth in it. And so they didn't need growth in this business. And so they said, we're going to manage this business for cash and returns. So the fundamental, the price leader in the industry changed. In the meantime, supply demand, the demand had grown slowly over time. There was no new capacity that came online. So you had a balance. And then you had one year to see that where the earnings were flat because they would raise prices led by Lubrizol, the product, the price leader. But immediately the cost of oil went up and that was a key raw material. So the margin, never went up. They raised the price again. Oil prices went up again. So once again, the margins compressed. So this happened four times in a row. The fifth time, I'm like, this industry has pricing power. One of these times, oil is not going to go up again. And so therefore, the margins are really going to expand. And if you look at where it is today, this company is going to generate $4 in cash. And it's a $15 stock. And the debt now is down from $700 million to $150 million. So therefore, it's a manageable amount of debt with free cash flow generation, with a $15 valuation on it. That's what I I went out and doubled up on the stock I owned. I became a 13D holder in the company. I think I owned about 6% of the company. It was a huge turnaround that you saw. So along those lines, it'd be difficult for anybody to see they would replicate that purchase pattern that I would do. And then I also then bought a lot more there at 15. I guess a computer could figure that out too, right? Because if you could go through those numbers and calculate and you didn't have the CFO, I remember speaking to him and saying, you're going to earn $4 next year. And his concern was, you know, from your lips to God's ears, I just lived through the last seven years that there were times where we weren't so sure we were going to come out the other end. So it's been a difficult time. So he, he's, his attention span has also been shortened dramatically. He can't look out. And his conviction that things will play out because he's probably been wrong multiple times over the last eight years on what his projections were. So he knew he had no reliance on his own capability to generate those ideas. And then, of course, that's where it became the biggest loser for us was, right, 15 months later, stock was trading at 38. And so 9.5 times free cash flow seems to me like in a low growth business, maybe it's not a bad sale, And of course, I sold out the rest of my stock at the end of 2013 after we got a $25 dividend. I think it earned $16 a share that year at $275 a share. So. The sales that I made continually up to that one, and of course, today, it trades at $470 a share, and I forget what the earnings are. And today, it's not a cheap stock. The valuation today is interesting, but still, how that all worked out, how that played out, how our ability to identify something and then stay with it and have that conviction ended up being a really great return for us that was really important to our performance.
0: If I heard correctly, you start up at 30 a share. It goes down to three at one point. Approximately, what years are we talking about?
1: 98 to 03. And in 05 is when we made the big investment. So we bought a lot of stock at 15 when it had started to recover.
0: And on the question of history ramming, would you say the housing investments have been a similar narrative? So housing, I think, is interesting in that, you know, the- For housing supplies. The 08
1: financial crisis was- Definitely exacerbated, but created what was the worst housing environment in the history of post war times. You had 450,000 single family homes constructed in 09, and the previous low was about 800,000 homes. And that was back in 1982. So in 1982, when you had 220 million people in America, and you maybe had 70 million households. So in, in 2009, you have 315 million people in America, and you have 110 million households to do really half the volume, into or two-thirds of the volume in terms of new home construction. That's off the map, and it stayed there for three years. This is an unprecedented depression in that business, and how the industry therefore has evolved and changed, I would suggest today is in many ways a different industry that is really interesting, we think. And therefore, you can't look at past cycles because the past cycles were not like this cycle. To think the recovery will be like those cycles, I think is a mistake. I think it's in uncharted territory, but there's still a cycle. How do cycles work? What does the capacity shrinkage look like? What does it look like for the survivors? What differentiation is there? How does that all work? That's what we do think, is we think if we have a five-year view that, Single-family, and that's what we, it's also, people always talk about housing starts, and housing starts are both multifamily and single-family, and so we really focus on the single-family. That's because a single-family housing start is really three times the volume, at least, of wood or any of the products that go into a home. So therefore, if you say, we're at 1.2 million home starts today, well, OK, but if you look behind it and there's 400,000 multifamily, that means the single family number is still off the charts in terms of low activity level. We think we get back to the normalized number of a million, a million one. We th- I believe we probably get to even higher levels. So even though household formation is more difficult to track, and that's the real leading indicator, it's still somewhat population and household based. The idea that it's a new generation and people are different and millennials are all going to rent in urban areas. I think having gotten out of college in 1975, we all wanted to live in urban areas and rent, and therefore seeing how people change and they meet someone and then they don't have the roommate. And then if it's a male and a female, you end up, or even if it's not, they still want to have, people want to have children. So therefore you end up with children Yeah, you like to stay in the city, but the next thing you know, you like to have a backyard, and the cost of living in the city is really expensive, and the cost of living even in a suburban area around the New York area is significantly less than living in the city. And they are fine schools and whatever else. I think that evolution happens every place, and I think it's even more so in the rest of the country as opposed to New York. So I think that there's a big cycle, and the implications of that and how we think then that implies for who sells what product or who distributes what product, what the implications are for the earnings, what the operating leverage is in each of those businesses, therefore what the free cash flow generation is. When I look at Builders First Source, I say you can't look at the historical numbers because there's no historical number that's of relevance to where the business is today. You need to come up with what you think the number is going to be in five years' time. And under these scenarios,
0: we think the earnings are dramatically higher than where they are today. I'd love to uh, explore when do people go from having knowledge to having wisdom. Well, uh,
1: there is no such thing as someone who has all the wisdom and someone who has none of the wisdom. I'm getting more wisdom every day. Irving Kahn was someone I knew reasonably well, right? And Irving lived to be 107. I hope to continue to come to the, he actually lived to be 109, but he came into the office every day until 107. I hope to emulate Irving and be into the office. And therefore I've got 40 years of experience, and I I would expect 40 years from now I'll have a lot more wisdom than I do today because I still do things I shouldn't and I'm foolish about things. Wisdom isn't its a continuum. It's not attaining some state of full wisdom. I'm not there for sure.
0: We are very grateful that you're going to be attending LatticeWorp 2017. You're sharing your wisdom with our community. Mm -hmm. Why are you sharing so much of your time, and why are you so committed to this endeavor? The, the, The main reason I think I do it is because I think
1: it's pretty obvious that, that I love what I do, and so talking about things that you do and you love, is kind of, it's exhilarating. So therefore, I'd love to talk about what I do. That's one of the main reasons. It would be great if something came out of it, uh, and I guess the one thing that I would uh, hope most to potentially come out of it is to identify someone who has the same kind of passion for our business that we do, Because one of the things we don't do is we, you know, the growth of the business has really been predicated on compounded returns of the capital we've had. I am 63. My capital is also people who are my age and older. There is some generational kind of uh, attrition that I'm going to be expecting in the business. So, therefore, to have more capital would be an opportunity mainly for the people who are here. Who are part of the process with me to so therefore, you know, there's a real future and a career for them. If I could clarify, financial capital, human capital, both? Uh, uh, well, I'm looking for people. I'm looking for a person who could help us market and raise assets from the right kind of investor, because that's really important too, right? I've also had the benefit of knowing that the huge advantage we've had is the capital we've had has been with us for a long time and is extremely patient. So when we have a year or two, we're underperforming, and we're looking stupid, they have fortunately been with us long enough to know No, they know what they're doing. And we've been through this before that we've had periods of underperformance. Having capital that aligns with how you invest is clear and fundamental to executing a long-term investment strategy, right? You can't have short-term capital and execute a long-term investment plan. There's a limited number of people that we would want to have capital from that would want to invest with us. That's perfectly fine. You, know, you only want
0: the, the right people who
1: are aligned with how you think about investing. And Bob, you've shared
0: your perspectives with us at value conferences with ideas and you've interviewed with the of Ideas. I hope you've received feedback over the years. I don't know if I've gotten enough feedback from the
1: entire world. So I don't know if I get honest feedback. I think people who are basically kind and especially if they meet me and they say, he's really not too bright and so let me be kind to him. So they're, I think, somehow kinder to me.
0: If I could turn the tables, what, what kind of feedback would you suggest is most value add? Different ideas is probably clearly the most valuable thing that you can have, right?
1: Because for you to think expansively, because you do get, I do get into a rut and I therefore develop a strong opinion on something and have pieces together and therefore to continue to incorporate the right kind of information because plenty of information in the short term will say, oh, you're wrong for this, that, or the other reason. I don't think it's people who have the right perspective and so their view is not relevant. It's the people whose views are informed views. That's probably gonna come from probably a management who really understands the business. Also, you can look at their track record and what is this person's history and therefore, how informed are they? And therefore, how informed is the opinion they're giving me back? And it's like, well, that's, you know, he's been doing this for 40 years. He knows this industry really well. And if he thinks that my view here is troubling, then that's a really great piece of information for me to have to retest my thesis.
0: So. In terms of international audiences who might be hearing this conversation what type of feedback or communication would you welcome? Fortunately Isaac uh, Schwartz who runs our global fund right in 06 he
1: convinced me to go to Asia and he said we should be investing outside of the United States and at the time I'm like that doesn't make any sense to me but you know he's young he's smart let me go try this. And well why don't we back up introduce Isaac Schwartz in more detail? Isaac Schwartz runs our global fund. Isaac Today is 34. We started the Global Fund 10 years ago when he was 24. I met him when he was 19. He uh, was working at an investor conference on uh, insurance, and uh, he worked for us that summer and pretty much every summer after that. So he's been working for us for the last 15 years, and he's 34 today. Isaac, uh, on graduating, traveled to Asia, came back and said, you know, there's, there's a great opportunity to invest with the approach we have in Asia since foreign markets are more volatile, Mr. Market is more manic depressive, the idea that valuations become further uh, disaligned from a fundamental value is greater. So therefore, initially, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I don't speak foreign languages, whatever. So I was feeling very limited. But he convinced me that made sense. He took me to Thailand and Thailand was great at the time. So right, it was in 06. So that's nine years after the Asia financial crisis. The balance sheets of pretty much all the Thai companies had been significantly repaired. All the debt had been paid off. They'd collected cash on the balance sheet. They had earnings, and they were trading at uh, mid to high uh, single-digit PE multiples with significant dividend yields. So the valuation became extremely easy to say, yes, these are really cheap stocks. I understand what you're saying now. Uh, So that was the original entry point. And then he lived for one year in Singapore and then five years in Hong Kong. Since he was on his own there, of course, he had a network of people that he developed that are local, but still to have contact with the home office, right? I took five trips each year out to to Asia to visit with him, and we traveled. He took me all over the place. So I've been all over, and... It's been hugely beneficial to me in thinking about investing because the world is flat in spite of there may maybe around the world temporary pushback on all countries in terms of pulling into themselves. The fact of the matter is that's a weak cyclical thing. It's clearly we're an interconnected world. So to understand that you know, has been extremely helpful to me in having a better what is business, how does business work, and how do countries work, and having a different view on what the world looks like.
0: Just to be clear on global, we're discussing Mongolia, Kazakhstan.
1: That's right. We, we are discussing uh, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, uh, Slovenia. Uh, so, therefore, it's out of the way places, in addition to in way places, too. So, you know, we've also been to Hong Kong, many parts of China. 12 I've been to 12 different cities in China. So, we're also in Indonesia. We're also in Singapore. So, therefore, it's not just in the funky places, uh, although
0: will do funky too. This question of how our global community could be helpful to you, if anyone is listening in these more interesting geographies, they can reach out to you perhaps. Just yesterday, I got a distribution from a fund that I had. So after Isaac took me to Thailand
1: in 06, the next trip we took was uh, two months later. In March of 06, we went to, there was a Euro Money Investor Conference in Vietnam. So we spent the week in Vietnam, you know, half of it in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, half of it in, in Hanoi. I walked away thinking, "Gee, Vietnam seems to me to be very." Here I am saying I'm a bottom-up stock picker, but when you went to Vietnam, the financials at the time, where there were there was an income statement and a balance sheet with no footnotes. When you talked to the management and you'd ask them some questions about inventory turns, they'd come back and tell you what the payable policy was. So therefore, the there was a clear lack of communication between, uh, you know, us as investors and the management and the financials were not fully expanded and all the companies had been SOEs, you know, state owned enterprises that had privatized with with all of the warts on it that came from that. But I met a guy there who had a private equity fund and thought Vietnam was self-sufficient in food and energy, has 100 million people who are extremely industrious, I would think are as industrious as the Chinese and therefore, you know, will and have a lower cost than where the Chinese are. So it's a significant And is a country that needs to have a great relationship with the United States because they always want to have a counterbalance because they have a neighbor who's right next to them who has 1.3 billion people instead of 100 million people who over the centuries and decades they've always been at war with. So therefore to have the United States as a counterbalance against China means you need to have access to American capital and have a great relationship with America. Therefore an investor in America in Vietnam is gonna be protected. That investment we made in 07, I've already gotten back 3.3 times my money in it. So I've had an affinity to try to find something to do in Vietnam because I do think it is an interesting place to invest in. We didn't invest. We went on another trip once we were in uh, Rwanda, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. And again, I think that part of the world is extremely interesting. problem is we have limited bandwidth. So therefore, over time, we would hope you know bandwidth grows and our core capacities grow. So today, I think we know a lot about home building in America. And before 2003, we didn't know much about it. You know, you always hope to as time goes on, gain more experiences, gain more competencies, broaden out both geographically and in an industry understanding. I, mean, I don't know what the next three things will do in the next five, seven years, but I hope we'll be doing more things because that's part of what makes it so much fun and so
0: so energizing and, and I'm so passionate about. It. We just stumbled into the theme of Lattice Work 2017, intelligent investing in a changing world. Of course, I'm
1: an energy investor. It's a changing world. Energy and energy consumption is definitely going to be different 30 years from now. Someone asked me that question recently. If you had to do it over again, what would you do differently? I said, I would have spent more time looking at Gabelli's entertainment stocks when I worked for Gabelli and not doing energy because entertainment will always be something that sells and is an industry and you can make money and you can invest in. Energy oil definitely is like more problematic. So how does that work? That's interesting dynamic because it moderates the idea that, oh, I've been through eight energy cycles, and I know how it works, and what goes down, it goes back up. The next back up may be different, or at some point, the next back up is going to be different than what it was 30 years ago. Therefore, it's
0: rhyming, but it's definitely not repeating. There are new paradigms that are coming into the energy field. As you talk about the world changing, what changes get you most excited?
1: I can't give you the exact answer to that. The the answer to that is uh, things that are changing in areas where you have the most knowledge. You maybe have the best understanding to identify what that change is. And clearly, being able to understand the change gives you an opportunity to get great returns. As bad as it may be in energy, to understand how that changes and to appreciate that and to identify what the opportunity is, is definitely something
0: that should work for us over time. We are grateful that you've uh, chosen to share your time and your wisdom with our community. Looking forward to last Work 2017, September 7th at the Yale Club of New York. And uh, truly cherish the time you shared with us. Bob, it's always an honor to learn from you. Thank you. Hello, this is Shy speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks. One, great people. Two, purposeful interactivity. Three, firsthand perspective. Four, intellectual honesty, and five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. LatticeWork 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about Challenger brands, about China and about disruptive innovation. We are case studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the Latticework podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us hand picked. Apply to participate in Latticework 2017 at latticework.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.